1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk to Dr. Emma Bridges about her book titled Warriors' Wives Ancient Greek Myth and Modern Experience, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. The book does a really interesting comparison that I think is incredibly helpful on a number of levels, comparing ancient Greek myths and depictions of women who are married to soldiers with modern day experiences of people married to soldiers. Um, And I think there's kind of some obvious contributions. It gives us a new lens to look at ancient Greek myths. It gives us a new way into thinking about modern military experiences. Um, And it also kind of unearths a lot of questions and answers and helps us do a really interesting kind of comparison over time. So Emma, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Miranda. It's lovely to be here. Could we start
1: off, please, with you introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this
0: book? Absolutely. So um, I'm based at the Department of Classical Studies at the Open University in the UK. And for those who aren't familiar with the Open University, we're we're a distance learning institution um, which offers kind of flexible study. um, And we're kind of here to make higher education as accessible as possible. So in classical studies, we we reach thousands of students every year through our undergraduate and postgraduate courses or our free online learning materials. Um, but as for why I decided to write this book, well, for as long as I've been interested in the ancient world, I've been fascinated by the way in which the ancient Greeks used myths as a way of discussing the things that matter to them, and particularly as a way of thinking about some challenging topics. So um, the poetry of Homer and the plays written by the 5th century BCE, Athenian tragedians, although they're mostly set in a mythical past, these texts use their characters and their stories to explore questions about human experience. So they reflect on how society works, they get us to think about how families interact, they talk about big moral issues, they Investigate emotions like grief and love and anger and so on. And the stories that they tell mean different things to different audiences, which is why they've been adapted and reworked so many times and in so many different contexts ever since they were first told. Um, But I think it was probably, gosh, maybe about 10 years ago now that I first started to think about how the stories that I was reading in those ancient texts might connect in some really particular ways to elements of my own experience. my, my husband served in the military for around 17 years. And although I always kind of mostly resisted defining myself as, as a military spouse, that's something that I touch on in the book about that there's, there's more to someone that, than that. Um, but th- um, there were aspects of that experience, the experience of being married to someone in the military, which, which I always felt were really hard to understand for anyone who hadn't been in that situation themselves. And so I started to realise that the ancient texts I was reading had their own versions of women who shared some of the experiences that I'd gone through myself. So um, being apart from a partner who was in a war zone, for example, um, dealing with the process of reunion and and so on and so on. And at the time, I was reading a kind of strand of scholarship which had focused on ancient Greek texts, uh, particularly the poetry of Homer as a point of comparison for the experiences of of modern-day veterans and modern-day serving soldiers. So scholarship that was looking, for example, at things like um, how the moral aspects of combat are discussed in the ancient world or how trauma manifests for the soldiers that we meet in the ancient texts. But I also realised that in that comparative work, it felt to me like no one was really paying much attention to the women's experiences and to what these texts might have to say about what it's like to be married to a soldier. So it felt like for me, I needed really to be the person to do that, not least because I had such a a personal connection to the material. Hmm. Thank you for that background
1: and context. I think it really helps frame Um, kind of not just why you wrote the book, but gives us a lot of threads to pull in our conversation discussing the comparison. Um, Obviously, your background working in this field gives some of the answer, but is there anything further you'd like to tell us about why you focus on epic poetry and tragic drama
0: as the method to compare these experiences? Well, it's It can be really hard to access the experiences of women in the ancient Greek world. So almost all of the texts that have survived were written by men. We don't have any first-hand accounts of, of women's lives and so on. Um, but the poems of Homer and the plays that were produced in Athens during the 5th century, they, they do actually provide us with, with some of the most detailed reflections that we have surviving on what it might like to be married to a soldier in the ancient world. So as I said, these texts are set in the mythical past, but they do show women like Penelope and Andromache in situations which would be familiar from real life. So saying goodbye to a soldier mourning a loved one's death in battle and so on. Um, now, the texts I discuss in the book focus on, on the Trojan War and its aftermath. That's that's a mythical war, obviously. Um, and those texts include not just the stories of what happened during the war, but also what happened to some of the heroes of the stories and what happened to some of their wives after the end of the war. Um, And those versions of those stories are really just part of what we now know must have been a much, much bigger collection of stories, many of which just haven't survived. The Trojan War is really a core narrative for the ancient Greeks. Um, And... It encompasses lots of aspects of warfare. So it's it's a brutal war that's fought over the course of ten years. Soldiers from all over Greece left their families behind to wage war in a foreign land before eventually destroying Troy and, and sort of killing many of the, the city's inhabitants and, and enslaving the survivors. Um, and then as I said, that this the sort of cycle of myths relating to those to this war. Um, also covers the homecomings of some of the Greek fighters like Odysseus and Agamemnon, as well as the lives of some of the Trojan women like Andromache or Hecuba after, after Troy Falls. So it's really, really rich in opportunities for exploring the emotions and experiences connected with life as a soldier's wife. Um, I think it's worth remembering, too, that the audiences for whom... The stories were first performed, whether as recited poetry or whether on stage as as plays, would have been very familiar with military action. So it's quite different from the modern world where in many societies, the military is is sort of set apart from a larger population of civilians. It's it's more of a, a career choice, if you like. In the ancient Greek world, every man of fighting age would be expected to serve in the military. So pretty much every woman would have a soldier as their father, as their brother, their husband, or their son. Um, so it really kind of connects with, um, although it's a mythical setting, it really connects with realities of elements of experience of what it was like when when kind of a large proportion of the population served in the fighting force. Now, that's not to say, though, that there aren't problems with using epic and tragedy in this way. I wouldn't want to claim, for example, that they provide us with kind of precise evidence about exactly how women lived and what they experienced. So for a start, as I said, these texts were created by men, and they were often produced and performed with a predominantly male audience in mind. So um, that's that's kind of an issue. And also that the text that we have very much focus on the experiences of high status women. There's not much attention being given to ordinary people who would form the majority of the population. But I do think that by drawing in detail some of the female characters from these stories, like Penelope and the Odyssey, they offer a really good way in for us to think about what life might be like for someone who's married to a, to a soldier. As I say, I, I really felt that there was a connection there with elements of my own experience of having been in that situation. Um, and I think it's also worth saying that it's often the case that um, those it's through the female characters who actually have little role in the fighting but have so much at stake. They've got so much to lose. The text also let us reflect on the moral aspects of conflict and the and the real human costs of war as well.
1: Mm. I mean, I think obviously those caveats are incredibly important. And yet there is a lot we can learn from these texts um, and are a lot of similarities between them in some ways, almost because the precise details aren't exactly the same. And so yes. we can see the kind of big picture in some ways, I think at least more clearly because of it and i'd like to ask you about maybe the biggest picture of them all i suppose um the kind of the myth of the military wife the idealized view of it how is that portrayed in these texts texts and to what extent do you think there are similarities between this version and what we still see
0: um i think i think there are some some really striking similarities i think it's worth saying that in any patriarchal society or any patriarchal organisation, there's usually a kind of ideal to which women are held as a way of maintaining and perpetuating that patriarchal structure. Um, And the societies that we find depicted in the ancient texts, and of course the societies which produced those texts, were and are starkly patriarchal. Men hold the power, men make the decisions, and that's particularly true when it comes to political actions and warfare. And so in order to maintain that status quo, the women in their lives are confined mainly to the domestic sphere. Ideally, uh, the wives of soldiers will be passive, they'll be uncomplaining, they'll be supportive of their husband's role as fighters. While their husbands go out to fight, the women stay at home, Um, the wives are responsible for maintaining domestic order, they're responsible for child-rearing. Ideally, that is, rearing sons who will follow in their father's footsteps. Um, and above all, of course, the ideal soldier's wife remains faithful to her husband, even when it seems unlikely that he's he'll make it home alive. Now, in the ancient texts, the ideal soldier's wife is like the Penelope figure in the Odyssey. Penelope waits 20 years for her husband to come back from the Trojan War, because after the 10 years of war, the journey home takes another 10 years. And so in all that time, she doesn't actually know whether whether he's alive or dead. Penelope is also incredibly resourceful. While Odysseus is away, she's pestered by over 100 suitors who are, who are trying to marry her. Now, that's not just about wanting Penelope as their wife. Remember, this is a patriarchal society. So by... By by taking Odysseus' place in his bed, they also get his wealth, they get his palace, they get his land, and they get his power as king of Ithaca. So that's quite a a lot. Um, And not only is Penelope dealing with all of these challenges of being separated from a long absent husband, she's also incredibly resourceful in the methods that she uses to hold off the suitors. And she does this using what was in ancient Greece of a typically feminine activity she tells the suitors that she'll choose which of them she's going to marry once she's finished weaving a shroud for her father-in-law. But what the suitors don't know is that she's actually unpicking that weaving in secret every night. So she's she's trying to delay the decision indefinitely. So Penelope's this kind of uber model military wife, if you like. She's patient. She's faithful, resourceful. And she's also pretty quiet. We don't actually get many opportunities to find out what she thinks about her experience because so much of this poem is focused on Odysseus and on his story. So we have to look quite carefully to, to get a sense of, of Penelope's experience. Now, in the modern world... There's also a kind of myth of the model military wife. The military institutions on which I I mainly focus in the book, those in the US and the UK, are still very much patriarchal structures, I would say. Um, Although in these contemporary societies, some things have changed. So for example, women can now serve in the military. Military organizations are still very male dominated, and they still rely heavily on buy-in from the partners of service personnel, um, whether they are male partners or female partners, or you know wh- whether we're talking same-sex relationships or, or whatever, there's, there's still this kind of very um, kind of um, ongoing patriarchal structure. Um, and what I mean by kind of buy-in from partners is that there are still expectations placed on the spouses of soldiers in terms of how they will support the military. There's a sense in which the ideal military wife is. A bit like Penelope um, she's you for it still usually is is a she in most cases um, they um, she'll be unfailingly supportive to her husband she's expected to deal with all of the challenges that are thrown up by military life so that's um, things not just coping at home alone while the serving partner spends long periods of time away but it's putting her own life and her own career on hold so as to accompany her spouse to new postings and that sort of thing. Now, that's not to say, of course, that that ideal necessarily matches the reality of how many military spouses live. But it's fascinating to me how those ideals and that kind of idea of a model military wife, that how they map onto each other in the ancient and modern world. So the model military spouse is still someone who's supposed to be content for all aspects of her own life to be subordinated to her husband's military role. And she's meant to do that without complaining. So, of course, this all comes with an element of silencing as well.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Not just not complaining, but not really talking at all. Absolutely. (laughs) So just being very, very quiet. Um, Could we get into within that myth, I suppose, kind of some of the constituent pieces, I guess, of the experience. Um, And I I suppose the obvious point to discuss first is around the departure of military spouses, that moment where they go off and a military uh, and the spouse is left behind. What sort of emotions do we see around those portrayals of this moment? And what does it tell us about how gender is represented, especially in this context of military partnerships? And again, what can we see in the ancient depictions versus how that moment is still done today?
0: Well, the most striking farewell scene um, that we find in any great, in any ancient Greek text, um, I would say, is in the sixth book of the Iliad, where the Trojan Andromache parts from her husband Hector for, for what is the final time. And that's an incredibly poignant scene, as anyone who's who's read it um, will will know. But it's also poignant because the audience knows that Hector is going to die in battle. Um, he's the foremost Trojan fighter, and it's fated that he'll be he'll be killed at the hands of the Greek warrior Achilles. And the goodbye scene between Andromache and Hector takes place just inside the gates of Troy because the war is happening in their own homeland, just outside those gates. And Andromache is there with their young son, Astyanax, and it's a really tender moment of farewell between the two. But she, she displays quite a range of emotions in that, um, in that kind of farewell scene too. She's weeping throughout, as, as you might expect, and there's, there's fear and there's grief at what might lie ahead. But interestingly, there's also resentment um, she accuses Hector, for example, of of only caring about the fighting and not caring about his wife and child. So she kind of she really admonishes him f- for that for, for putting the fighting first. But ultimately, um, she's terrified of losing him and of, of what that that's going to mean for her and for the baby as well. She imagines their future as captives and as being in the hands of a hostile enemy with with no Hector to protect them after he's dead. But Hector responds by saying he simply can't shirk his duty as a fighter. He's got no choice but to put his life on the line, regardless of what the consequences are for himself and for his family. Now... um, you also asked about gender roles. And interestingly, this scene does paint quite a stark picture of gender roles in wartime, not only in terms of the emotions that it depicts, but also um, in terms of, of who's doing what here. Andromache is left behind to care for the child. Um, she does have uh, an enslaved attendant, as as would be normal for um, a high status woman um, at this time. But she's basically kind of by being represented with a child, there's a real emphasis here on um, women as prov- providers of childcare and a kind of the, the domestic role of women. So she's left behind caring for Astyanax while his father goes out to fight. Um, and there's more emphasis, too, on Andromache's domestic role. Hector basically says, you know, go back to your tasks in the house, get back to your weaving. There's that, that weaving again, which is very much, as I said earlier, a feminine activity. And he tells her to leave leave the war to the men. The war, the war will be the men's concern, he says. Um, and there's also a sense here of Andromache's vulnerability as a woman. In many ways, I think she symbolises precisely what Hector and the other Trojan warriors are, are fighting to protect. And interestingly, we see elements of those divisions along gendered lines in some of the modern descriptions of farewells too. So in the book, I draw on sources like news reports, which are talking about departing troops. And in those, the the focus is often on details like children clinging to their mother's legs as as the women wave their husbands goodbye. And, And often in those scenes, the women are are represented as being very stereotypically feminine with an emphasis on their appearance details like that you know their, their kind of mascara running as they're crying and this kind of thing um, an emphasis on on their emotions as as the men the men leave and in fact actually that's something that um is drawn on in in the cover of my book which was designed and drawn by by a brilliant artist um Asa Tolbert. and that image that we created there also plays on that notion of gender stereotypes. You know, the the image shows a woman in in what we might think of as this kind of stereotypically feminine outfit. She's embracing a soldier who's dressed in camo gear and boots, and there's a rifle and a rucksack. So there's a clear contrast between those two figures. And I kind of wanted that image on the cover to represent that, sort of, um, to be symbolic of the way in which those stereotypes are still perpetuated by military institutions.
1: I'm glad you mentioned the cover, um, because it is really striking for this point in particular, um, but also kind of encapsulates a whole bunch of things. So definitely a moment for listeners to go look up the cover of the book (laughs) um, and then keep that in mind as we continue our discussion. In terms of what we've mentioned so far, there's quite clearly a lot of demands being placed on the military spouse um, in terms of not saying anything, not complaining as you've just mentioned, right, looking a particular way, acting in a particular way. You talk about the idea that the military could be considered a greedy institution in a way that particularly impacts military spouses. Can we kind of, we've been, we've been talking about it implicitly, I suppose. Can we make that idea more explicit? How can we think of the military as being greedy? And to what extent was it greedy in similar ways if we compare the ancient to the modern.
0: Absolutely. Now the, the term greedy institutions was was coined, um, it's it's not my term, it was coined by sociologists to refer to institutions that make particularly heavy demands of people who are part of those institutions. And there might be demands relating to the the time or the energy or the loyalty that that individuals who are part of those institutions are expected to devote to them. And the family is a good example of a greedy institution, and that's one um, of which most people have have some experience. But what becomes a challenge is when someone's connected with more than one greedy institution. So if you're part of a family, but you're also part of another institution which which expects those kind of, you know, makes those, those really extreme demands of you. Um, and those two institutions compete for time and energy. Um, the military is very much a greedy institution because of what it expects of service personnel, I think. Um, But what's interesting here is that it also makes demands not just on the serving member, but by extension on their partner and their wider families too. I think we're probably quite used to thinking of soldiers as making what we might call sacrifices in the course of military service. But what also happens that is maybe acknowledged less often, is that their spouses are often expected to make sacrifices too. And in the modern world, that might be in the form of giving up any control over where to live, for example. So so being posted far away from family and friends, it often means that military spouses might have to put on hold their own life plans like education or a career. And in day-to-day life, it can mean simple things like just missing out on time together but also being unable to plan ahead or dealing with major life events, so the birth of a child, bereavement, major life celebrations and so on, dealing with those kinds of things alone when the serving is away from home. Now, those things don't map on precisely to how the military operated within ancient Greek society, but we do still see examples in the ancient texts, like the case of Andromache, which I mentioned earlier, where she says to Hector, you know, you, you, you're really heartless, You're you're putting you're soldiering, you're putting the war before us as your wife and child. So we see plenty of examples where family obligations come second to the demands which the military places on soldiers. And, and as I said, with, with Hector, it's very much, I I have to do this, I, I can't, you know, it, it's my obligation, it's my duty, I have to go and fight. Um, But I think it's something that I, I discuss at, at more length in the book, is that in the stories of the Trojan War, the, the notion of sacrifice plays out in a quite a literal form and in quite an extreme form in the story of Agamemnon and his wife, Clytemnestra. Agamemnon is the leader of the Greek troops, and the story goes that before the Greek army set sail for Troy, the goddess Artemis demanded that he literally sacrifice his own daughter, Iphigenia, because that's what was required by the goddess in order for her to grant fleet a fair wind for the voyage to troy so it's clearly it's a horrific and gruesome story and and while there's no evidence at all for actual human sacrifice in in this period this this is a story from myth we do know that um part of greek religious practice would be the sacrifice of animals but but human sacrifice is not a thing it's really important to say that but i do think What's fascinating here is that this is a really powerful metaphor for the way in which the family so often has to come second to the demands of the military. In this case, he literally sacrifices his own child. Um, And in some versions of of the story, it's partly Clytemnestra's grief and resentment for the sacrifice of her daughter, which drives her to to murder Agamemnon when he eventually comes home from Troy. Um, So I think that story, as far-fetched as it seems... Really has something to say to us about how the consequences of the military's demands as a greedy institution can be incredibly damaging and very far reaching for the families involved.
1: No, absolutely. And I think adding those dimensions into kind of the family's experience is key to demonstrating that impact. Um, And I'd like to kind of continue thinking about that because it's not just the moment of um, departure, it's not just the kind of multiple people being impacted. There's also the, as we've talked about a little already, the kind of uncertainty of the waiting of the time. Um, And we mentioned Penelope already, but is there anything further we want to talk about in terms of learning about that kind of period of waiting and uncertainty from examining her experience in the Odyssey?
0: Yes, as as you say, Penelope in the Odyssey has a lot to deal with. Um, She's got The constant worry of not knowing whether Odysseus is is dead or alive and whether he's ever going to come home. Um, She's responsible for raising a child, Telemachus, who was a baby when his dad left for the war. She's also trying to keep everything in order at home in the absence of Odysseus as the patriarchal head of the household. So she's having to take on new roles that she, she isn't normally kind of used to. And on top of all that, she's having to struggle to find a way to stay faithful when the suitors are becoming more and more unruly, they're kind of trashing the place, they're eating um, Odysseus out of house and home and um, and they're getting more and more insistent that she needs to forget Odysseus and choose one of them to marry. It's a lot. Um, and so in the Odyssey we get a sense not only of the, the sort of practical challenges that Penelope faces and how she deals with those in this very particular set of circumstances again it the circumstances themselves are, are quite remote and detached from anything that a contemporary military spouse might experience but um, you you know it's it's not a big leap to think about the kind of the way in which uh, a lone spouse at home might have to take on roles and and, um, and responsibilities that we usually shared between two people for example there are, there are lots of examples of that in the modern world um, so there's that that sense of a lot of practical things to deal with but also we do get a sense in the odyssey of the emotional aspects of penelope's experience while while Odysseus is away so for example one of the things we see her doing most often is is weeping uh, she's often alone in bed at night and the, as the poet describes it um he says the worries crowd her mind she's, she's got a lot a lot to to kind of worry about and she's actually dealing with what psychologists Sometimes referred to as ambiguous loss, and that is a loss where there's no clear resolution um, in this case because she doesn't know whether Odysseus is alive or dead. And she has to manage the very particular kind of grief, which which comes with that uncertainty, the uncertainty of not knowing. And there's a real sense of confusion, I think, here, too, when it comes to the wait for news about Odysseus. She makes it clear at times that she finds it painful to hear stories of the Trojan War and stories of, of you know what might have happened to him, but at the same time, she's also desperate for news of, of her absent husband. Um He's Odysseus is, is what we might now refer to as missing in action, I, I suppose. And there's a sort of ancient rumor network, and Penelope doesn't always know what what to believe. So there's a lot of emotional confusion there as well. Um, and as I said, modern military spouses have to deal with some of some of these issues, even in cases where soldiers aren't classified as missing in action, but they're away on deployments when you know they're in mortal danger and spouses might not know what sort of you know what they're going to be carrying with them when they come home if they if they do come home alive what kind of um, trauma they might carry what kind of injuries they might have suffered um, and the lasting impact of that but spouses today still often talk to in in relation to their kind of wait for news they talk about the dread of that knock at the door which um heralds bad news while their partner's in a war zone now obviously we we now live in a world where we've got 24 7 access to news it's very different from the the world in which penelope operates but in some ways that that 24 7 access to news via the media can actually heighten anxiety about the safety of loved ones on the front line because there's no escaping it's there all the time Um, And I think at the same time, the first hand accounts given by military spouses, as I I mentioned earlier, they describe some of the sort of the more mundane aspects, I guess, of, of life when their partner's away, being responsible for everything at home without the support that's normally provided by the partner. And also, of course, dealing with the loneliness and the stress that's associated with those periods of separation, just like Penelope in the Odyssey has to cope alone without Odysseus.
1: Mm, no, some very striking parallels that we might think, oh, well, technology would solve that. Actually, not so much. So not thank always, you for... no. Yeah, exactly. Um, we've talked about ideal wives um, and the pressures that that creates. The ancient texts, however, don't just talk about ideal wives also about some badly behaved military spouses. So can you tell us a bit about those examples and the extent to which they might relate to modern stereotypes?
0: Sure, yes. Yeah. So um, as I've said, Penelope in the Trojan War tradition is very much the ideal wife. But her opposite in those stories is normally Clytemnestra, the wife of Agamemnon. And I mentioned Clytemnestra briefly um, as, as murdering her husband on, on his return from Troy. So, um, now, in both Homer and in tragedy, Clytemnestra is often presented as a kind of counter example to Penelope. And I think she's sort of represents in extreme form, the fears that some soldiers on active service might have about what's going on back at home while they're deployed elsewhere. Clytemnestra's is A complicated story, as I said, one aspect of it is the horror that she experiences when Agamemnon chooses to sacrifice their daughter Iphigenia so that the Greek fleet can sail to Troy. Um, But another part of her story is the fact that she takes a lover, Aegisthus, while Agamemnon's away. And sometimes that infidelity is presented as the main reason why she kills Agamemnon on his return. She's also presented as a transgressive character in other ways. In in some versions of her story, not only is she unfaithful, but she unashamedly assumes the power both in the household and in the city while Agamemnon is absent. So she's subverting the patriarchal ideal in the absence of of the male um, ruler and the male head of the household. Um, In Aeschylus' play... Uh, titled Agamemnon, when when Agamemnon returns home, Clytemnestra does a great job of pretending to be the model wife at first. She she actually very much pretends to be the Penelope figure and, and talks about how much she's missed him and, and all of this, but all the while she's plotting to kill him. Um, and his homecoming actually becomes the stuff of nightmares and it's held up really as a sort of cautionary tale about what might go wrong when the male head of the household's away from home on military service. And there are plenty of examples of anxiety about the infidelity of of wives back home in modern representations of military couples, too. We find them in in popular culture, um, in in kind of TV dramas and films and so on, uh, but also in factual accounts of of wartime experiences. But what I think is also interesting here is that there's very much a gendered double standard, both in the ancient world and in some modern contexts. Particularly when it comes to infidelity. So, Odysseus, for example, has various dalliances with women on his journey home from Troy, but no one really sort of comments on that. He's never judged for his infidelity by the same standards to which Penelope's held. You know, she's she's meant to remain faithful against against all the odds. Even though in, in lots of ways it would make a lot more sense, given that it's fairly unlikely by now that Odysseus is going to come home alive, um, it would make a lot more sense for her to marry one of the suitors. Um, So there's very much this this double standard going on there. And similarly, I I share in the book various modern examples where soldiers are judged far less harshly for their infidelity than their wives. And and even in some cases where the the infidelity of soldiers while on detachment is is an accepted part of life, really, um, in some cases, and, you know, conversely, there's, there's also some really horrible stereotypes relating to unfaithful military spouses in the modern world. And these are almost always placed a bit like the kind of Clytemnestra Penelope dichotomy. These, these kind of awful stereotypes of, of unfaithful military spouses are, are very much um, placed in opposition to the kind of ideal, attractive, devoted, loyal wife. And also that, that loyal wife who, by implication, is also meant to turn a blind eye to any transgressions that her husband might make as well.
1: Yeah, no, not doing anything herself and very much quietly, calmly accepting the double standard. Yeah, no, very much a feature throughout this. Obviously, in those examples in particular, um, the moment of homecoming, the idea of homecoming is a huge part of these issues of fidelity and what you're accepting and not. So can we talk a bit more about kind of the moment of homecoming and how that's represented in the ancient texts? Um, And again, of course, to what extent that resonates today?
0: Of course, yes. I think I think a key point to start with here is that in this this context, homecoming or reunion is, is maybe less of a less of a moment, less of a single moment, and more of a process, which often takes quite a long time and which can be really complex. So there's there's a romantic image of military homecomings that captures the moment of a soldier's return. If you think of those those joyful photographs in the media of soldiers hugging their wives and girlfriends when they come back home, you'll, you know exactly what I'm, what I'm thinking of. And as a, as a one-time military spouse, I've been a part of some of those moments myself on the tarmac when the plane lands and, and you've not seen them for, for months and, and that kind of thing. But really those images are just a one tiny snapshot of a reunion process, which is much longer and much more complicated and which um, I think the Odyssey in particular represents in a really interesting way. After, a long time apart where they've been in two very different worlds, one at home, one in in a war zone and separated under really difficult circumstances, both partners will find that they need to get to know each other again. And that can pose real challenges, especially when the serving partner suffered physical or emotional trauma. And there's a sense here in which each partner's unrecognisable to the other. And that's played out in quite a literal sense, in the Odyssey. So when Odysseus first comes home, he's in disguise so that he can scope out what's been going on back at the palace before he reveals his true identity. And that presents an obvious barrier to his reunion with Penelope. He's literally unrecognisable. And even when he takes off the disguise, she she still struggles to believe that he's home. Alas, it's been a really long time after all. And in this process, this ongoing process of homecoming and reunion, the poet is the Odyssey kind of shows Penelope experience in a whole range of emotional processes. So denial that he's home, fear that she's being tricked, and also, of course, we do get the joy and the relief when she when she's able to accept that this is really Odysseus. But there's still, even at by that point, um when they share this kind of reunion embrace there's still a need for the couple to reopen communication um homer sends them to bed for that he sort of he euphemistically glosses over the reunion sex but he focuses instead on the conversation that they share in which each tells a story of what happened when they've been apart. Um, I think it's worth pointing out here, though, because this is a particular annoyance of mine that I like to kind of bring up whenever whenever I have the opportunity to, that um, despite the fact that most of the poem has been devoted to telling Odysseus' story, Penelope still gets far less space to tell her story to him. So in the reunion scene, when they do kind of tell their stories to one another, she gets four lines to summarise her story. And Odysseus, despite the fact that the entire poem has pretty much been about him, he gets 32 lines. So again, this comes back to that kind of idea of, of, sort of silence. And, and kind of, you know, lack of parity of, of kind of experience there. Um, it's worth saying as well that all this does resonate sometimes for contemporary military spouses too. Often first-hand accounts of, of of modern military spouses and their reunion processes will talk about their partner seeming unrecognisable in some way. Sometimes that might be kind of a, a change of physical appearance, but more often it's, it's to do with, Um, having experienced very different things and being a a kind of different person in some way and those accounts will often suggest that couples need to find ways of reconnecting and getting to know each other again and reopening that communication in the way that Penelope and Odysseus do. Often other things have changed at home too. Children will have grown and changed. Sometimes children have even even been born in the absence of of the serving partner Um, and everyone is going to have had to get used to new ways of doing things while the serving partner's been absent. So it might be the case that the the partner who's coming back has this kind of fantasy of what home looks like. And actually, that's very different from how they imagined it or how they remembered it from before they they left. So this whole process can be really messy, and it can be really fraught with tension. And that takes time and patience to resolve. So that first embrace on the tarmac, if you like, after the military plane lands is, is usually just the starting point of a process. Um, I think it's also worth remembering that often the reunion isn't the end of separation for a couple either. Often it's just part of, of a repeat cycle of deployments. And interestingly for Penelope and Odysseus too, there's more to come. Odysseus has only just got home when he tells Penelope that he's not gonna to have to set off on another journey. It's not a military mission in his case, but he is leaving again soon. And I think similarly In the modern world, with every homecoming, there's also a kind of inevitability about future separation. We're going to have to do this all again before too long.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I think one thing that's incredibly clear from the answers you've given us in kind of tracing through these moments of farewell, of waiting, of acceptable or unacceptable behavior, of homecoming, uh, that there's kind of a lot more similarities than we might have initially expected between these ancient texts um, and what's still happening. But also that in both time periods, there's still a lot of stories that are untold, that are silenced. I mean, the the fact about the kind of number of lines Penelope gets puts that <laughs> incredibly starkly, <laughs> um, but I think is indicative rather than the exception. So if we kind of think in some ways, to next steps sort of after this book to an extent, how do you think Athenian tragedy might offer ways to think about the stories that are untold or that haven't been told, both sort of the ones that you've illuminated in the book, but kind of more broadly
0: as well? Well, I think um, one of the things to sort of think about in, in tragedy, particularly, that it's quite upfront about in ways that maybe epic poetry isn't is that um tragedy explores in more detail things like the particular traumas that are experienced by women in wartime so it provides a space to explore some of the far reaching impacts of conflict on civilians and on women especially and i think that there are many kind of examples we we could talk about here but i think the one that that i that sort of i come back to a lot is that one of the areas that tragedy can shed light on, which is really harrowing, um, is in relation to what happens after after the war, what happens, you know, in relation to the enslavement of the women of a defeated city, what um, you know, in, in terms of the the sexual violence that is often used as a weapon of war. So the playwright Euripides was especially interested in exploring those aspects of conflict and, and several of his plays focus on the aftermath of the Trojan War for the women whose homelands has been destroyed. Now the rape and enslavement of women was, was sadly a routine aspect of warfare in the ancient Greek world and unfortunately today in some contexts what we would refer to as mass martial rape is still very much a feature of armed conflict and this is a and a good example of, of somewhere where the stories are often really hard to come by, the stories of survivors of this kind of brutalization can be hard to find, whether because um, women are silenced through fear or, th- or through shame or because of the effects of trauma or because researchers are maybe reluctant or simply unable to examine these atrocities because it's hard to, to find the evidence and hard to access it. Um, and as I said earlier, ancient tragedy can't and doesn't represent the the literal authentic voices of of real women but what it can do is give us food for thought about the impact of war on the lives of women so we do find a lot of female characters in Euripides tragedies who were survivors of wartime atrocity although the figure who I I focus on most closely in the book is Andromache um, because she's the wife of of the Trojan soldier Hector so we, we um, we meet her in the Iliad as she says goodbye to Hector, and then later she receives the news of his death. But Euripides then imagines her life in the time after the end of the war. And again, this is a kind of story that it's it's not often not often told, or it's hard to find. So Euripides' Trojan Women, for example, takes us into the Greek camp immediately after the sack of Troy, and it highlights the suffering of the women, including Andromache. Uh, the women who've been bereaved, they've been brutalised, and they have eventually about to be displaced from their homes and and taken abroad as a result of the war. Um, And then another of Euripides' plays, the one that's actually named after Andromache, imagines Andromache's life at a later point when she's living in Greece with her captain, Neoptolemus. So those plays really give us some sense of the horror of war and its ongoing consequences from the female perspective, as well as things like providing insights into what, survivors of wartime sexual violence need to do to survive, for example, by complying with their captors' demands and the ongoing trauma that's associated with those experiences. So when so often voices of of women like these are silenced in the modern world too, I think tragedy can give us a, a really powerful starting point from which to think about experiences which might be very different from our own and to kind of give us a way in to opening up conversations about topics which might be really difficult to, to, to talk about. And, and I think that's really one of the things that I've tried to draw out throughout Warrior's Wives, the idea that these ancient stories can shed light on the aspects of the lives of women which might otherwise be hidden from those who don't share those same experiences.
1: No, absolutely. I think that's definitely uh, something the book is doing. And as you said, outlines areas for further work as well. And on that topic of further work, if I can ask a final question, uh, the book is obviously done, it's out, it's available. Is there anything you might be working on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact
0: topic that
1: you'd like to preview or highlight for us?
0: Sure. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. I'm quite done with this topic yet, to be honest. I think I mm. might still have more to say about military families, but I'm. St- I'm not quite sure what direction that could go in. I'm. I'm kind of still thinking about that. I think. I feel like I haven't quite said all that I want to say about it. Um. Mm-hmm. So. So there may be more. I'm not sure yet. Um. But I've also just started thinking, actually, about a new research topic, which. Like Worry's wives does connect with elements of my own personal experiences, and that's a, that's a project which is thinking about emotions and how emotions show up in the body and what what ancient texts might be able to tell us about that. Again, I don't yet know what shape that that will end up taking, but it's it's fun to be at the start of something that's completely completely new to me. Mm. Um, aside from that working at the Open University involves, among other things, writing lots of teaching materials for distance learners too. Some of that's connected with my own research, some of it not so much. But at the moment, I'm soon going to be working on some new materials for our new Classical Studies MA course. Um, And I've also been collaborating with colleagues on a, a suite of free short courses, which are we make available on our free learning, open learn platform. And that's a set of courses called Head Start Classical Studies that's designed to introduce aspects of the ancient world to people who um, are new to classical studies. And actually the course that I've produced for that is on Homer's Odyssey. So that Mm. connects with some of the things we've talked about today. So Mm -hmm. quite a lot of different projects and different things to think about. So several things on the go at the moment. (laughs) Well, thank you for
1: giving us that preview. And of course, for any uh, listeners who want to get into All of the details we didn't cover in this interview, Uh, the book is titled Warrior's Wives, Ancient Greek Myth and Modern Experience, published by Oxford University Press. Emma, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda. It's been a pleasure.